This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by the Chasing Artwork booth at the Toronto Fan Expo this August 22nd to 25th. Come on down and pick up Cassie and Tonk, Rust and Water, Red and See-Through, and the new Chasing Artwork art book. Attention citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science! This is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We're here with Newsroom Dan and my long-suffering co-host, my Justin. Nickname. No? My, my nickname at the newsroom is now Ducky. No, uh, well, you said you didn't like that. Well, I don't, but Hal Anderson calls me that, and so I let Hal, Hal Anderson call because he's the 34th greatest Canadian of all time. Right. So I let him call me that. We're here with the 37th greatest <laughs> no, Canadian of all time. No, not even close. Uh, Justin Curry, not even close, you say? He's like number two. Hey. Oh, you thought I was going to go in a different direction? Though? I did think. Yeah, we were setting you up for a knockdown. But no, Justin is fervently, that's the word I'm trying to pronounce badly, uh, going through a list book. Tell us about your list book, Justin. So I carry around a sketchbook, and it's kind of half sketches and half lists. What kind of things do you put on your lists? So the first couple he pages. He said listlessly. List, 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 list. Um, I have a shopping page, a life stuff page, the paintings forged page, which is the really exciting one with all the thumbnails and new pieces, and then project slash endeavors, and then uh, yeah. How often do you add stuff to these lists? I think I'm constantly um, consolidating and updating, and so. I'll make a list, I'll do some sketches, I'll cross half the things off the list, and then I'll kind of need to start a new page, and I'll take things from that old list and reword them or rework them so I can maybe double them up with something else To the beginning of your new book. I do that too now, and I'm trying to figure out if I... Because I've been doing that for a long time, uh, but I started to codify it, I think, when I started working here. It must have been you I stole it from, like to comb through the old sketchbook and then pull forward yes not just the ideas i used to just pull forward like sketches like if i had four or five characters i was trying to refine i'd bring them forward into my new sketchbook and continue that iteration yeah but now i realized uh, a real strength in pulling the list also like the basic information go through the old sketchbook check off everything that was done right or not done and then bring the not dones forward into the new book it's once you're getting to the end of that old sketchbook it's so tempting to jump over to the new one and you feel like you're abandoning an old yeah life. so yeah. harvesting everything out of it into the new one is my first step yes how, typically how long does it take you to fill up one of these not too long when did this one start i also when i travel i collect um sketchbooks i don't like you know that's my every time i go to a new city or oh. a new whatever i get sketchbooks and art supplies so i have a like two shelves full of Blank sketchbooks, and in the front page, I write like where I got it from. Yeah, and for the mind's eye of the dear listener, we they're more like journal size. They're easier Some to carry. Yours is quite this big. one's bigger. This was I went um, off type just because I really um, I don't know why I just like the binding on this big one. But I usually get smaller ones so that every two between two and four weeks, I'm onto a new one. Okay, and it keeps that fresh. And is going. there anything special about the book? You just like the look of it and you buy it, the kind of thing? Is that the idea? I like them to be blank. Oh, oh so no line, no line yeah, paper. No just, lines. just, yeah. But that's just for me. I mean, some people. But the covers, like I see Justin's cover has flamingos on the outside. <laughs> it's pink <laughs> flamingos. It's very transcoding. Mine's of you. just red, just cherry red, uh, and hardcover. 
right now. And I'm actually looking forward to being almost finished. How long? Like, I think I've had this one since March. It's a smaller book. It's like a, like, six by eight. And you write microscopically. I write tiny. (laughs) The reason I ask is because my daughter has one of these going right now. So she's starting to really get into the idea. of. She takes it everywhere she goes. Yeah. Yeah. So she, like, right now she's in a day camp, uh, martial arts day camp, and she brought her sketchbook because she's going to spend some time sketching, and and that's kind of just her. It seems funny to to talk about it like this, but I like a smaller, thinner one better because I have trouble breaking up with it <laughs> right away. So you don't. <laughs> so I need it to be small enough that I can carry two for a while. Okay, I like, thought you just wanted to have a fling. That's your no. So like while while the one, it's almost like the one is training the other one while it's in my bag. It's like here's the things that you're needed to do. You know, he's going to do this kind of stuff, and you know, like that's just how it is. That's a future comic right, right. there. Your sketchbooks talking to each other. Right. This is how it is. Right, he's going to spill coffee at some point. <laughs> it's not you. It's not personal. What are your relationships, both of you, with um, day planners? Oh, I hate them. I hate day planners. Yeah, I no, tried. Never I good at that. There's some cool ones out there, and I love the idea of them, and I always get one with the intention of it being, being so organized. Yeah, and, and it lasts about a week, now, and then... there is a leap forward we've both started using. Um, there's a weekly stick-in planner. So it's like a... Really like, long post-it. Yeah, it's like a big, wide post-it note that has the whole week on it, and you can stick it in your sketchbook. So when I have a really busy week, I peel out one of those, I stick it in my sketchbook... So that all of those uh, necessary meetings, to-dos, um, responsibilities, and or accomplishments all go in that one place. And then I don't have to carry an extra book around. I don't have to put it in a... Di- I find digital calendars suck all the life out of... All the whimsy and all the possibility <laughs> of my week is gone as soon as I have to put it into a digital calendar. Yeah, I don't. I don't usually bother with that either. Yeah. So, and it, but I, I desperately need something like that to help me remember things because I do quite often forget. Yeah. Um. And I, what I at my lists are always like just on a scrap of paper as I get to work. I sit down. Okay, what do I have to do today? And I write down everything that I can that comes to my mind that I have to do that day. Do you do so lately? And by lately, I mean like the last five years. My practice has been I make that list. And then I pick the thing I least want to do. Oh, that's a good idea. I don't do that. And I do it first. Yeah, that's a great idea. I should mm-hmm. definitely do right. that. Now, it has. there's a danger. There's a danger in it, Dan. Because if the thing you least want to do, you do first, and it's really horrible, it can affect the mood for your whole day, <laughs> right? Like, you can be like, oh, I started with this shit, and now my day is Well, like oftentimes, the thing I least want to do is answer emails, right. which is a big part mm-hmm. of my job, and... That can suck you in because it really you can just get going on emails and then forget about stuff and that can take way longer than you anticipate. Yeah. So that's been an issue for me in the past. Yeah. Oh, man. That's tough. <laughs> Have you guys ever done a bullet journal or is that what that is? Well, I, I kind of I, uh, I make my own little bullets or whatever and then I go through and I highlight them. I found out like I used to check them off. I used to cross them out. But I like the highlighting because I can look back on a page and see that everything's been kind of crossed off except for a few things, a couple things. And I just draw a little box. Yeah. Right. And then I scratch it in. When it's I love that image. Good. So you got like a little sketch of a person there that has nothing to do with the sketch. That's it, right. Yeah. It's just because um, that looks similar to what I'm looking. I'm just Google the idea of Google bullet journal. And you see, and I remember this because one of my students once made a tutorial video for an assignment in one of my classes to tell you how to do a bullet journal. And they basically buy a very similar blank 
book like that, but then they they very nicely sketch and design it so that it has the, these headers, really like all hand drawn headers. That you're spending as much time designing the book as you are putting stuff into it, and people really enjoy doing this. Well, here's the here's what it forces. So why I like the sketchbook. So I was really down on digital planners. There, if you're a really busy person and a digital planner helps you, by all means, right? I'm not casting shade on that. For me. Adding the doodles, adding some decoration, adding some stuff into it is a moment where you force introspection. You have a moment where you slow down and your brain and your hands are doing a secondary task and then that other part of your brain can kick in and think about things, right? Mm -hmm. um, I'm reading a really cool book right now called The Dragons of Eden, which is all about the development of human intelligence and how like the brain evolves. And there's a really interesting part which I found myself really thinking about the last few days about how our short-term and long-term memories are not stored in the same place, which is why you can, you know, like a, a waitress can hear a whole bunch of stuff or a waiter. Server is the proper term. Server, thank you. I was, I was struggling for the gender neutral. The <laughs> server, but I don't like the idea that they're a servant. Well, I don't either, but what else do you call them? Yeah. Anyway, okay, so the person at the restaurant who takes your order there can you keep go. all That's of that stuff long. in their head. But they don't remember. It doesn't clutter it's, up. Well, as soon as they place the order, it's gone, right? They can the short-term memory is not stored in the same place as long-term memory. And the, one of the, the, the real ways of talking about it or describing it to somebody else is to say, when you have a dream, you wake up and you have this vivid idea of the dream, and then you go back to sleep and you've forgotten it. But if you wake up and you wake up the person beside you and you say, I had this dream, right? The part of your brain that remembers sounds is a different part of your brain than the part that remembers thoughts. Hmm. And so when you say it out loud, it's easier to remember it. But it's not, it's not a trick. It's literally because it's a different part of the organ activates when the noise is present. Hmm. Interesting. Right? Um, and so the same is true when you're writing things down. There's a different part of your brain that is organizing and deciding the visual space of it. So sometimes when I'm thinking about my list, I remember this guy here that I drew, right? Yeah. And this reminds me of the list. This is the mnemonic device. Okay. This picture of this guy reminds me of these five things that I have on the list. You're going to need a bigger boat. I've been working on a Harry Potter piece lately, and then the other day... Again, real fast. I've been working on a Harry Potter piece lately. That's not very fast. Say it fast. Why, well, well, I don't want to say I don't know. I feel like there's a danger in that alliteration that I want you to stumble <laughs> on. Um, and part of the pieces that I'm work part of the elements that I want to work into were like the horcruxes, where you know you put a piece of your soul into an artifact. So if you were to ever be killed, a piece of your soul is left over and you can keep going. Spoiler alert. Spoiler. Well, it's dude, it's, it's like so yeah. done now. Books anyway, live forever, man. So all the movies. While anyway. this was in my mind, I also had like a momentary like, oh god, where's my sketchbook moment? <laughs> and this one in particular, oh. I've got so many good important lists and good project ideas and future endeavors sketched out that were if this were to disappear, like it'd be like a chunk of my soul. <laughs> so that's your horcrux. That's your yeah, horcrux right for there. now, yeah. yeah. And I was until wow. you reinvest it somewhere. If else. that sketchbook were to go missing tonight yeah it would hurt yeah yeah it would hurt How, like uh now here's an interesting thing about it is that i've started moving some of this sketchbook core ideas into the new one as i approach the end of it and i would have the last sketchbook so i have like a parenthetical like the shape you know like the the uh evidence of its absence <laughs> would be present in that hmm. but yeah it would hurt a lot 
So that's the bonus, I guess, for a digital thing. Is that if it's in the cloud, it's harder to but lose. But sometimes you lose that stuff too. Oh yeah, that's so true. Yeah. yeah. All life is fleeting. That is our, <laughs> we finally got back to that theme in the podcast. And I do, uh, it's weird when you have to redo. So I've, uh, when I was working on the older version of Adobe Illustrator CS6, it doesn't have any kind of recovery function. Right. Like CS6, Photoshop and InDesign have great recovery software. So you almost never lose anything, but for whatever reason, Illustrator didn't get that same attention. So if you file deletes and you hadn't saved it's gone yeah you can go in uh for the dear listener if you're having a panic you're like wait you can't recover things you can go into the file tree of photoshop after it's crashed and go and look uh for the recovered files folder and there'll be some stuff it might be a few versions yeah, old or versions. something might be a few versions old but there's some of your work remains but not for long. But back so, it up. Just yeah. please back it up. That's the one. We tell all students that all the time. Yeah. Back up everything. Yeah. But I want to know if you guys experience this too. When I've had to redo like a painting or an idea, the second time around, it's always in my mind like this isn't as good as the first time I did it. You think that like whatever that magical gone version that's disappeared was better than what you're doing now. But I've seen it before where I, I redid the painting and I had that feeling that it wasn't good enough. And then I was able to find the original again. It, didn't, it wasn't deleted. I was able to track it down. It was saved under a weird name or something like that. And it turns out the second version was better. When I redid oh, it, it was better. But my mind kept telling me that that version that you lost was better. So this is the argument that every substantive editor ever has always wanted to be committed somewhere. You've done it. You've, you've framed it just right. Because the author, when they're presented with the idea that they should change their work, right? And I just went through this with Good Boys, right? Mm -hmm. There's that immediate resistance that no, the initial idea, the initial spark of the muse is pure and we must not tamper with it. Get away from this. But I was wrong. First idea, worst idea. Yeah, yeah. often. That, that's what we, we, that's our mantra in, in Creecon because, and it's not only, I mean, occasionally the first idea is actually the best idea and that's fine. But the point of that statement is to force people outside the yeah. comfort zone, to force them to think about something else. Sure, great. You came up with a good idea. Set it aside and do another one. Do yeah. something yeah. else because you never know. You never know when that, good, that inspiration is going to strike again and strike in a better way. Yeah. Right? When we teach writing workshops, we often, um, present the idea that everybody's I come here with a great idea well your idea is worthless and I'll prove it to you we're going to set a timer for five minutes and you're going to write down a hundred story ideas right you're going to get as far as you can in five or ten minutes somebody wants something complication ensues just write it out don't worry about if it makes any sense sometimes we randomize we just make a, a list of a hundred protagonists and a hundred situations and right and just mix and match and in a ten minute span of doing a hundred ideas the one you thought was good is obliterated by this sudden, um, whimsical juxtaposition of a new idea presented to you that you never would have thought of because you're giving it too much weight, making it too important, mm -hmm. and that the idea has no value. Only the action related to the idea has value. If you like that enough to do something with it, now it's valuable. John Cleese had a great line about that as well. Him and another writer on like the, not Monty, yeah, Monty Python, they were both really good writers and their first ideas would be very comparable. They'd be both really good ideas, but how John Cleese, like he would actually go back 
and do new like other ideas and rewrite and retool. Whereas the other guy just always stuck with that first strong idea. Yeah, I, I got it. I think yeah, that would have been Graham it. Chapman. Yeah. Graham Chapman was his writing partner yeah, for right. a lot of that. Yeah. But Cleese would go by, and he wasn't, you know, um, he wasn't married to that first idea. He was able to evolve it and come up with others. And not every idea is precious, right. you know. That he was whole kissing thing. a lot yeah. of frogs, as the saying goes. Kissing. A lot I've never of heard them, that yeah. saying. You've never heard. You got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find a prince. I thought it was just the one frog. No, that's exactly it, right? No. In the story, though, it's just the one frog, isn't it? Well, that's where we come into the story. But one can imagine that princess has played that game before at possibly, many Possibly, possibly. Right? Or there's a lot of frogs out there scamming the princesses, making them think. Also true. Also true. <laughs> hey, princess. Is that book, Stinky Cheeseman and Other Horrible Fairy Tales? Do you remember that book? No. Ran rampant in uh, middle school. Oh. No, I don't remember that. No, the only iteration of Princesses and the Frog I clearly remember is the Robin Williams version that was on uh, Fairy Tale Theater, which is a PBS show that ran when we were kids. <sighs> and they had all kinds of crazy celebrities in it. Yeah. And uh, Shelley Duvall, I believe, was in that one. Yeah. And uh, and then they would just do these kind of one-off fairy tale um, depictions. And yeah, Robin Williams was the Frog Prince. That was like in the early to mid-80s. $10,000 for me by myself. For that, you get the head, the tail... The whole damn thing. It seems our episode is about managing large amounts of information and ideas. That's good. That's a good right? assessment. So if that's in fact true, what are the ideas that you know you've lost? Do you have any like, oh, I know I had this great idea, but I lost that sketchbook. Oh, I had this great start, <laughs> but I lost that. It's not that I lost it. I think I lost like the momentum for that project or that idea was I should have set aside other things and done it then yeah. because I don't know if I'm ever going to go back and do that. So yeah. there's some ideas for some pieces and projects that I just let go cold. Does it hurt to think about them? Mm. Do you feel like you've let them down like there's a part a couple, of yourself? Yeah. 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 How about you? I once thought that I should invent a larger um, container for concentrated orange juice. Uh, because uh, I was always so frustrated when I buy, I mean, this is not an unusual problem. You buy a thing of orange juice and you make your orange juice and it's always not enough to fill the jug. It's not enough to fill a two liter jug of orange juice. Right. Have you ever had this problem? Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. It's, yeah, so years left. ago, I'm like, why don't they just give us three a, quarters? Yeah. Why don't they just give us more? Why don't they just make a bigger thing of concentrated orange juice? Because you're left with the decision of, do I add more water? And you make it water down. Yeah, or do or I, I add another one that's too strong? Yeah, so, so my, mm. <laughs> this is a long time ago. And mm. I'm like, and then years later, they did it. They actually did make a bigger version. So I don't know that... It, okay, the <laughs> beginning of the story, not the end, but the beginning of the story, there's a great analogy that can be made for writing or working on creative stuff that sometimes you feel your idea is not big enough to fill the whole container, and you're left with that, do I add another big thing? Mm. And does it get too strong? So like the, this happens to me a lot. I'll come up with a, like a constant, like I'm working on a project right now, a comics project called Arena City. And it's, you know, it's kind of like a dystopia, it's kind of a cyberpunk, it's kind of all of these other things. And so there's lots of room in that mental space to pull in too much, right? Mm -hmm. What do I really think about cyberization? What do I really think about prosthetics, right? And the um, role it plays in humanity. What do I think about genetic manipulation? Those ideas are all big ideas, but they have nothing to do with the story. And so it would be like adding a whole nother plump 
of orange juice. Right. And now it's too strong and people don't, it's too many flavors and they I'm don't sure know what it is. I'm sure we can think of actual examples in which that have t- that's taken place. In, Del in... Toro's Hellboy 2, The Troll Market. Should have been its own movie. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it was really good, but yeah, we didn't he need it. He poured yeah. so much, like a, like a good chunk of the movie's budget was going into it and he wanted to do so much more and he had to be like reined in. Yeah. Um, and it's like, yeah, five minutes of the movie. Amazingly, it, though, I think the idea from Troll Market in Hellboy became Troll Hunters. Oh, that's true. Right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Which is good. A really good series. You know, and I don't know for a fact that there, that there's a one-to-one in there, but they're just made of the same but he, stuff. But isn't he on that? Isn't he a producer on that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay, oh, yes. Yeah. It beca- it's his thing. Yeah. So I think it was one of those ideas where, where it should have been mixed into a diff- its own jug. Should have been dropped into its own jug, right? You're like this orange juice analogy. Well, huh? you brought it up. Well, I thought it was a literal thing that I did. Um, but yeah, I, and, so, and so I'm sure there are many more examples of that. So you kind of have to know when when enough is enough. Right? You have to kind of be, how do you do that? How do you f- figure it out? Yeah, like so are you worried that you're going to give some element of the story too much attention? And, and then divert lose, it. Yeah. Like dilute the actual real story that's right so what i'm trying to do right now is ask myself what is the core conceit of the story and can i write it as a simple sentence and every scene that i'm writing or illustrating what part of this new scene adds to my understanding of that core idea if instead it would force me to restate the core idea to encompass the new scene i have to drop that scene no matter how cool it is because it's getting me away but that scene from, can, can still live on somewhere else, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, so, and it might be better the next time you take a look yeah, at it. Also true, right? And so things that are... That's what the sketchbook is for. Yes, so exactly. it like fills up with your darlings, and you don't take them to every dance, right? <laughs> this kind of... It's full of analogies right? today. Yeah. Today it's a good day for analogy. There's something in this uh, latte. I'm not sure what it is. Um, but it's something that young me couldn't do. My first draft of the first novel that I ever wrote, I went back and found recently, and I was going through it and realizing that it is just, every chapter is like, what if I made this a great horror book? Oh, what if this was a great sci-fi book? Oh, what if there were superhero themes in this book? Right, like I had not settled on what I was really writing. There was too much in me, and every chapter of the book could almost be the beginning of a new story. It was a number of characters, and so it was writing from a bunch of different points of view, right? Which is a is a trick to begin with. And I realized that I was writing a different story for each of them, and there was no way. The reason why it's not finished is because there was no way that it would ever encompass. But I found one of the chapters, and one of the situations held up. Mm. And I told myself, if I cut everything else from this, the the two or three chapters that contain this thread be a pretty good short story. This is making me think about um, books turned into movies and how they often don't hold up and a lot of times they're a bit of a mess because you're trying to fit in so much of a world that is easily done in like a novel. Putting that into a two-hour film and like producing a good movie is right, because a very a, tricky thing to do. In a novel, in exposition, in prose, you can set up a very complicated worldview in a paragraph or two. Mm-hmm. But to do that in a film, it becomes boring exposition if a character simply tells you that worldview. Mm-hmm. And so if you're trying to show it and, and use music and images and all of these things to build up that feeling, you're on your way somewhere. And then if you suddenly turn left, we were talking about this before the podcast, that Netflix show Night Flyers suffers from that, right? It just, 
twists and turns for no reason too often. Yeah. Right? One of the best, um, although the movie itself I have issues with, but one of the best opening credit scenes I think is Watchmen. Like oh. the, op- the opening credits for the Watchmen um, tells the entire story of that world yeah. really well. It's a mastercraft of the setting up the regular world as strange. Yeah. Right? Like they show you the, the uh, time period and how that time period is affected by this new idea and how the world would be if that new idea was real. And they do it all in three or four minutes. For those of you who aren't familiar with the opening, it's kind of a montage of newspaper clippings and news reports of how superheroes became like part of the police force almost. It's like remixing famous news headlines. I'll put two Bob Dylan. Yeah. Yeah. Times they are changing, which is appropriate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm going to see if it's on YouTube. I am surprised, actually, that that Bob Dylan song was used in a superhero movie. Yeah. Why? Well, it's not really his jam, I would think. No, but they probably culture. drove or a dump truck full of money up to uh, his house. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's on there. Watchmen 2009. That's 2009? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's forever. Ten years right. old, that movie is. Wow. And the new series is coming soon. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't we just leave it as a comic book, guys? <laughs> we know all about you, Chief. You don't go in the water at all, do you? Some bad hat, Harry. I was reading Mike Alred's, like, um, uh, Two Mars Publishing publishes these um, interviews with creators, and I picked up a whole bunch of them that were published around 2010 when I was in San Diego Comic-Con. So uh, Mike Alred talking about the Mad, Ma- Mad Man movie being oh. made. Not Mad Men. No, Mad, Mad Men. Man. They, they never made that. Still being optioned by Rodriguez. Okay. And how... Them doing Sin City was a way of them testing the technology to do a Mad Men. Oh, wow. Okay. Right? Um, and how that option... I don't know if that option is still underway, but for 10 years, the option for his film and his relationship with Rodriguez developed because they were working on this movie for 10 years trying to get it right between other projects that Rodriguez was working on. So, would you want one of your projects, Justin... To go into a ten-year development, we call that development hell. Yeah, in a lot well, of cases. Well, I think people from the outside call it hell, but people who are in it just call it development. Well, because I mean, I, I don't know. There's no set timeline for for film development. It could take anything from a year to ten years or more, right? Well, there and what films. you're waiting for is a perfect storm of market forces, interest, a comparable film that creates a fervor and a demand, and all the right people coming together, and all the right people coming yeah. together, and someone's schedule and and then egos, and then writing, and then money, and then all of those things. I mean, we're doing just a paper-thin slice of that with the Cassian Tonk development right now. Yeah. I can't imagine if there was a big studio with big money behind it, how much more complicated it would be. Because right now, if we don't want to do something, Justin just says, nope, we're not doing that part. Not, not at this time. Not at this time. Not at this time. Right? <laughs> and that's like so freeing and wonderful. It is. So what would you do, though? Um, if you guys get to that point, would you want... I mean, as the creators, you can put in your contract, you want some creative control over it, right? You want to be able to, obviously, you wouldn't be the, maybe you would be the director, but maybe, probably not. You would turn that over to no. a different director. Oh, you can't, I couldn't be the director. So, Are you kidding? We don't know. Yeah. Well, you've yeah. you worked in film before. Okay, but been, okay, but that's like saying I went to a boxing match. I can totally take on Cassius Clay. No way, <laughs> right? Right? We've been dancing around this. Okay, so somebody wants to option good boys right. from you. Yeah. 
and they're going to give it to director this Michael. This is a hypothetical. Yeah, hypo- yeah. hypothetical. Yeah. Um, there's two, two ways it could go. Like, you stay involved, you put a lot of your time and money into it, and it's a very small production, and you retain creative control. Or another route, Michael Bay wants it, and he just is going to buy it right out from under you, and you never and make lunch and boxes. You're not going to see it again until it yeah. hits the theater. But you would be quite but, well off. You'd be well compensated. But wouldn't that also? Would you say yes to that? Because that means you've done it with this. Now you, you have a much it. better chance of doing it again and being more involved, and then doing it again and being even more involved. Like if you say no to a big company wanting your project, does that kind of Burn a bridge. There's the yeah, it totally does. There's this un, there's this belief that somehow every deal will be new and pure and perfect, but there are only so many people making those money decisions, and they, for a large part, know of each other or know each other directly, and so you don't you can't. It's a small world. You can't poop it where is, you eat, yeah. right? Um, to answer your question, so if someone came to me and said, uh, "We want to make this into a film." Will you sell us the option? I would make sure that that option expires within one year. Okay, that's a good that's a good call. That way, they have a year to do it. If they don't, then you get it back. Well, they have a year to begin production. Okay, right is yeah. how that works. So what would what that would mean is in the contract, uh, they have twelve months to act upon the property, right? To start doing sketches, to start doing designs, to start doing to give me an idea of what it would look like, and if they've started then, of course, they're going to need another year. So they're going to pay for that next option. But leaving the option in place, once you start, you usually can't keep stretching the option. They'll want control now. Mm-hmm. So the option is for the, is for the um, luxury of beginning, right? If I option uh, Media Nerds podcast because I'm, I'm going to do the film of your life story, Dan. So boring. Right. <laughs> I'm going to pay you the option to start. Once I've started, there's a different payout. Okay. Right? There's a percentage of budget is owed but to you, you lose control. To contract. You lose control. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, so really it's about finding the person that you, you trust yeah. to do it the right way. That's what you're trying to do here. Well, in the story that I gleaned from uh, Mike Allred's interview was that uh, a big studio wanted Mad Men right after Mad Men pardon me, uh, right after the Batman craze started with the first Tim Burton movies. Oh, geez, okay. Right, so that's how long in the tooth it is. Yeah. Uh, and they danced and danced and danced, and the director he kept naming as the person he wanted was Rodriguez. And when Rodriguez... This is back when he was working on Desperado and, that's and right. that kind of stuff. And so it was like this indie... The, the indie heart is what he wanted to be working on his film. And then when... You know, I don't know the whole story, but how it all came together is they ended up meeting really liking each other and Rodriguez saying, no, we should do this ourselves. Let's do it outside of the studio system. We'll have a lot more control. Well, how many years since Tim Burton's yeah. Batman came out, we still haven't seen a Mad Men movie, right? Yeah, interesting. So. I don't know. It's tough to say. And, and I mean, we see all these adaptations go out there and people like some people like them, some people don't. I remember going to see Watchmen in the theater. I was very excited about it because that was one of the comics that really kind of got me going on yeah. comic books. And I, I, I tend to have a bit of denial when I come out of a movie sometimes. I get so excited about it. I'm like, that was awesome. Yeah. And my friend looks at me and goes, yeah, I don't know. 
right. and he was you know he had issues and, and maybe one of the issues with that was that it was too close to the comic book it was almost frame for frame uh in a lot of ways the the comic yeah if book. you really want to divide a comic book room you tell them, and I do this a lot, you tell them that you liked the Watchmen film adaptation, which I did. I, I mean, I don't have a problem with it. I have not seen it in a while. I don't know if it holds up, but my main issue with it, and if I'm going to be honest, is the the um, Zack Snyder style of fighting that he does, where it's a slow and then the fast, which worked really well in 300, but I didn't love it in, in Watchmen. Right. So that yeah. was really the, the main thing. Yeah. And maybe that Leonard Cohen scene in, I have a in the Owl I have a strong suspicion that ship. it's much safer for the actors... And it gives the oh, ability for sure. yes, yes, to create yeah. real uh, dynamic storytelling without needing a ton of. You don't have to spend a year coordinating, uh, learning that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Right. But but still, like again, but it seemed to be at the time his signature yeah. of his yeah. of his films was that style because it was right after Three Hundred. That was kind of his thing, and he just kind of kept that going into Watchmen. So and then, what was the one with all of the people in the schoolgirl uniforms fighting robots. And oh, Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch. Uh, I like that one as well. Yeah. I, I, Parts vis- of it I like, Visually, but it the story wasn't great, but the visuals were amazing. Uh, I like the soundtrack. I liked a lot of, a lot of that movie. Uh, even though that was his, um, I think that was his, like, when he was into the Warner Brothers deal for, for uh, Man of Steel and that, that was yeah. his, like, I want to do what I want film. Right. Like, he, when he got that deal, the director said, here's the one, I just want to make one that for me. Yeah. That was his. And then for, for Chris Nolan, it was Inception. Yeah. <laughs> so it show, kind of shows you the difference there. Um, so that was, uh, I mean, you know, it's very tough. I, I don't envy anybody who kind of tries to adapt anything, really, into okay. a film or TV show. And what all of this has in common with our original conversation is it started as a note in somebody's to-do list. That's right. Right? Was it, uh, her, uh, was it Toy Story, Finding Nemo, and, like, Four of like yeah, the cars he- and cars were yeah. all figured out in one lunch meeting and they're all on napkins and that yeah. was uh, the, the Lion King. Did you say the Lion King? No, no I don't okay. think the Lion King. It was like all the yeah, all the Pixar, Pixar sh- Disney. All the Pixar yeah, but Lion King was also like that. Yeah, apparently. and and uh, they, they, again, it was like on a flight somewhere. Where Actually, a bunch there's of some to... controversy there. There is a an animated film from like the '70s, yeah. which is almost Kimba, Kimba the, the White, White Lion, Lion. Uh, Simba. They swear, they swear, it has nothing to do with uh-huh. it. I don't that know is. that they would be that. I think if if they really had ripped that off, they wouldn't have been so close. Have you to... seen the Shot for Shock comparison? Yeah, no, I'm not. Some no. really Whoa. compelling evidence. <laughs> I know that it deals with a dead father as well, but that's not uncommon. And there's like in any a toucan, a, like sidekick. Right there. Mary Ellen Moffat. She broke my heart. <laughs> Was it last episode or the episode before? Two episodes ago, we talked about somody taking your style or yes, taking your Yes, that was actually more than two episodes ago. That was a while ago. It was a couple episodes ago? Yeah. yeah. Depends on the order you listen to these in. That's right. Yeah. But we got, uh, we didn't get, but it popped up on one of the Artist Alley groups that we're part of, somebody dealing with exactly this. Yeah, like this. within 12 hours of us talking about that on the podcast, Justin's like, hey, look, people are really mad about this exact thing. So there was a gentleman in Montreal who has a fairly... It's not a distinct style, but a distinct process of doing things. He kind of, he cuts up comic books and pastes them together in kind of collage. It's like a collage, yeah. And then kind of paints over them with splatters and stuff. So it's like this messy comic book collage. Cool. Um, he's, He's based in Montreal and he had this one guy who's bought some pieces and had lots of questions about the process. And then this last year, that gentleman showed up with a booth exactly the same, doing exactly the same thing. 
Um, and so not only did like people who had been buying from the, the original guy for years thought that this was the same guy, the same yeah. art. Um, and so the guy just kind of laid this all out. And it was funny. All the comments yeah. kind of went through the gamut of everything, <laughs> everything we talked about. Going like, get him kicked out, talk to the organizers. Yeah. Or like, you can't do anything. You just got to like double down and get better and burn down his booth. <laughs> like, <laughs> so it seems extreme. <laughs> so, but this comes back to the around to the idea that your idea itself is worthless and only the action creates the value. So like, while that person had an interesting idea to begin with, the execution of the idea was easy to replicate once it was out, right? Mm -hmm. Like a paperclip is an excellent idea, right? Now, everyone manufactures paperclips, right? I have whale paperclips. Right, that's what I mean, <laughs> right? So if what you're doing is you're tearing up a bunch of old comics and then cutting out the character of a cover of that comic and then gluing it on top and then throwing some paint on it, well, compositionally, you could have some variations, but the actual process to the untrained eye of the marketplace is producing the same work. And if we were being really honest about it, like the, the old school comics ripped each other off all the time. Constantly. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. all those characters are the yeah. exact same thing except yeah. on the, like what's, what's uh, I think Shazam was the one that kind of went, I went what is this guy? Like, Ooh, Mar oh, uh, uh, no, there was Captain Marvel and Shazam. Yeah, watch it though. You got to check the publication history. All right, so Shazam was first. Captain <laughs> Marvel and Superman, and you, there's you, there's a fight to be had. Okay, okay. Yeah, that that all came to the forefront when the film came out. When the Shazam film yeah. came out, they were talking about that yeah. and how many different versions of this character are out well, there. Well, in the Fawcett, I believe that's who the publisher was of the original Captain Marvel, right? They eventually folded into DC. They weren't part of them to begin with. Okay. They were competition. I see. Right. Interesting. Yeah. 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 What else? But it was the singer, not the song. So it's a Superman analog with magic as its yeah, reason. Yeah, I think that's fun. I mean, like, right? like I'm okay with that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's not like, I mean, Superman was such an iconic character that many people wanted to have their own take on that. And well, and I made one for uh, World War Weird. My Atlas character is basically like, what if Superman was the pure embodiment of white privilege, right? Like, yeah, but that's a cool kind of take on it, But right? it's just the same. But some people would say Superman stuff. is the, the embodiment this of white what privilege. what I mean. So, like, what if he really what, just... What he was overly... He always thought he was right because no one could ever prove that he was wrong because no one can well, ever wasn't that kind of, uh, was it burn bright bright burn bright burn yeah i haven't yeah, seen that they don't try to hide that this they're just doing superman but yeah what if he decided he was, didn't want to follow anybody's rules yeah. i was i have not seen that um and i was wondering about that that's not like a warner brothers thing no. or anything like that no. it's just a people like it's literally the same story as superman yeah just but different if, but without with with uh, they don't use the name or the logo or the wow. actual situation. And so they did, they're not getting sued they by can't Warren. Can't be sued. No, I had this long talk with the people when we were in San Diego with the people at the Antarctic Press booth because I went and I just there were some of the uh, the shot callers were there and I just said okay I need to ask you these Steam Wars books that are designed to be exactly like Star Wars books and Steamship Enterprise, which was on there, <laughs> right? uh, or Airship Enterprise or whatever. I was like, guys, how are you not in trouble for this? How have you not been sent cease and desist? And they said that it's different enough that it counts as parody and that you can't confuse it. They said the test that their lawyer, and I f believe the way he phrased it was that our lawyer provided, meaning that I think they may have been called to question on it, but I don't know this or for they just, sure. They or they just tested. know this is it, yeah. Yeah, they showed, you know, you show a 
picture of the Starship Enterprise to somebody and you say, what is that? And you show a picture of your Steamship Enterprise and you say, what is that? And if they don't confuse the two, right, then the one is not considered to be biting into the market share of the other, mm. right? Uh, yeah, but that could also be just... Or Airship Enterprise, I forget what it was. The Steamship Enterprise is not as well known of an image, right? So right. that's just like, if they're not as as popular... Yeah, just look up Antarctic Press. Oh, I saw it there, it. yeah. I mean that looks like it. That, that looks like the <laughs> yeah. right. That's so, just, but a, they they were gonna die on that hill, and they said that part of their publishing history is taking risks like that. Um, <laughs> and uh, I guess you're gonna poke that bear. That's yeah, fine. it does seem like that. But like, there's a difference between style and content, right? So the content is similar, but the style is very different. And so you could argue that it's not the same thing. If someone is doing uh, your did the subject matter of your entire lineup, Justin, mm-hmm. right? Would they actually impact your regular customers who are coming for your style, not your substance? I guess it depends how close to home they hit. Yeah. Like if they're just kind of grabbed on the coattails a little mm-hmm. bit or if they're trying to copycat. Right. And some of the, like, the cases that we've talked about on the show have been like direct copycats not just hey i see what they're doing i'm gonna kind of try to integrate that into what i'm doing and make it my own okay so let me throw some shade on our own stuff yeah isn't cassie and tonk just us remaking iron giant but in an apocalypse Mm, it's because this is what the audience says to us all the time. This reminds us so much of the Iron Giant. And we say, well, we love the Iron Giant. Well, so I have to, you know. Plus, we you have, have a big s- Iron Giant image on your, um, on your banners. Don't yeah. you have one? Yeah. 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 So that's a, and so obviously like hacking a, their minds. It's obviously an influence, but I don't know that it's the same thing. I can't. But. But. The robot is much smaller than the Iron Giant. <laughs> <laughs> that is our, so if we can, so what I, the point I'm making here is that even at your own stuff, you can throw stones and you have to know your motivation for making it. We know that our motivation for making Casting Tonk had nothing to do with copying or following the trend. No. Right? Yeah. If we had sat down and said, what is the most popular comic book on the, on the stands right now? We would not have said... Iron Giant. Not not at that time. Right? Yeah. Certainly not at that time. Yeah. So. And maybe not any, even now. Right. I would say. You it's can't do that. And if you do that, you've already missed the mark. Right? Oh, you know what? No, I would say Iron Giant, since uh, I think the Ready Player One movie had it in it, so it's been a bit more oh, in the public. Oh, that's been bursted a bit. Um, it but, kills me when somebody comes up and is like, oh, it's a robot from Ready Player One. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> yeah. There's a lot of people you've punched that, in but the before, mouth. But before that, it was pretty obscure. It's not that popular of a movie in the in the mainstream uh so. yeah it got a really bad release i think like no it did not do well yeah. yeah but it was brad bird it was why brad bird like got to do the incredibles yeah. and all the anyone other who makes movies who saw that movie couldn't help but want to give him a job I, well I, and i remember seeing it when it came out on video i was working at blockbuster at the time and being blown away by it yeah. simply because the computer animation aspect yeah. of it was and really vin cool. diesel was like one of and vin, vin diesel was first yeah, but got- no, I, I would say if I was to look at a photo of, of a, of, and you, you, you've got your own um, interpretation of the Iron Giant and Cassie and Talk next to each other, there's no way you could confuse those two. No. You know, a, a, the Iron Giant is not every robot. And it's, by the way, it's this very specific, like, retro-style robot, yeah. and Tonk is not that. No. Well, 
and I mean, it's the thing that we always caution in our workshops too, is if you're gonna rip, you know, and we stole this uh, straight from J.J. Abrams, if you're gonna rip off Jaws, right, and you rip off the monster, you're ripping off the wrong thing, right? <laughs> okay. Right? Yeah. You have to rip off the heart under the story to make you upset that people are being eaten by a shark. I think that's it. I think we get annoyed when people don't go to the, the extra steps and see, okay, so what is it about Jaws? It's terrifying. It's yeah. that there's this unknown thing, monster in the water. You go in the water, you get eaten. Like you yeah. kind of distill it down and you understand it. Yeah, an unknown monster in a place that you usually find safe. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but so when you can understand that and then apply like Tremors would be probably a good example. Right. Like somebody who saw Jaws and understood it made Tremors. So Yeah, because you just... When you're standing on the ground, when you feel standing, safe. You feel but safe. if something could grab you, no matter anytime you're standing on and the ground from you underneath under, you, yeah. that's scary. So, yeah. but yeah. then somebody who made was I don't the Lake Placid. Shut up. <laughs> <laughs> Lake Placid is a fantastic film. You son of a so, but come back to it. You have your core idea that starts in your book, mm-hmm. right? And you make your list and you follow through on it, and now you're making something. And your idea has value because you're taking action. What happens is external forces now are at play on your idea. Someone whispers to you, right, if there was more monsters in it, it'll sell better. Someone whispers to you, oh, if there's a, 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 a female protagonist as the lead, it might sell better. Someone whispers to you, like, oh, if, uh, if it's PG-13, it'll have a bigger market. And so now your idea is, is like under assault team? from all of these external forces which may or may not be true. And you can find all the examples where the outlier destroys that rule. And we tend, I think, in the genre community to hold up the outlier as if we don't have to follow any of these rules because look, here's an example of when it didn't work. And ignore all those outliers that died. That died, yeah, Yeah. there's the other side. And there's a median where on average that advice is true but you're going to end up with an average story. And if what you want is an above average story, what you might get is a below average story, right? Mm-hmm. So you have to, you know, there's a lot at play from the book that we've got with us to it existing somewhere else. Um, and again, I'll come back to Good Boys. The first version I turned in versus the version I've been working on with the editor, uh, the first version is so over burdened by what I'm trying to tell the audience the book is about and the most of the editorial advice from High Water Press was your images already say this Gregory you don't you don't have to say this also take that out take that out and I'm my initial reaction was like people won't understand it if I don't tell them because this is new to me it's new territory for me to be talking about and their advice again, good editorial advice, was no, the people who are going to read it will understand the context from the image and they'll understand the context because you're talking about the world we're living in now. Stop preaching at them. Just mm-hmm. take that out. Mm-hmm. Just take that out. Just take that out. And the newest version literally has 80% less text hmm. than the first version. Hmm. Cool. It was scary. <laughs> but it's a way better book. So first, what did you say? First idea, first worst idea, idea. worst idea, yeah. My first idea with that book was the worst idea. But I still, it's a success story in the studio as being I came up with the concept and pitched it within the same 10-day period and was accepted by a publisher. 
So the first idea was strong, but the expression of that idea that came soon after wasn't very strong. Mm -hmm. So I succeeded because I didn't have the other stuff to show them, right? I showed them examples of other work I had done and this idea, and they made the one-to-one. They're like, well, if he can do that, and this is where he's starting, it'll probably be pretty good. And then I turned in the first draft, and they're like, ooh, mistake. (laughs) (laughs) Regret. Regret, right? Buyer's remorse. That's right. So we had to work on it. Cool. And I think that that's pretty normal step. Uh, Dragon Nanny, are we gonna? Yeah. Are we gonna have that problem? Nope. No. No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> nope. Okay. Well, uh, this has been Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre gets made. We're urging you to make a list, join the fight, and make comics. <laughs>